this week on the Sport Blokes. This week, the Tears of England contribute to the washout that keeps the Ashes in Australia. Djokovic can't escape Alcaraz as Carlos wins Wimbledon. Harley Reid can't tell West Coast what to do. And how you going with hoop grids, Nate? <laughs> oh, lots again. Let's go. It's 8.42 on Monday, the 24th of July, 2023. The state of Victoria is ghosting the Commonwealth Games. Another idiot has caused carnage at the Tour de France by getting too close to competitors. And England are saving cricket by failing to even acknowledge mistakes, let alone take responsibility for being 2-1 down in the change rooms while Manchester floods. I've got my partner in crime over Zoom once again. We've had a bit of a difficult start, haven't we? But we're finally up and running. Shui, how are you, mate? Oh, good that we're finally recording now. It has been a, an absolute schmozzle of a build-up to hitting record today. But yes, as you say, we've got there. The Aussies have the ashes in their pocket and everything is good in the world. <laughs> yes, indeed. I think it probably makes sense to call it teeing off this week, mate. And I'll let you go first. Yeah, absolutely. One of the biggest sporting events in the world right now, as you've alluded to. The Open has officially wrapped up at Royal Liverpool. Congratulations to Ricky Ponting for winning the Open Championship by six strokes. Have you Honestly, have you seen the photos of Brian Harmon and how, how much he looks like Ricky Ponting? Yeah, who was it? One of the, one of the uh, women cricket commentators said, congratulations, Ricky Ponting on Twitter, I think it was. Well, it's still called Twitter, of course. Yeah, I did see that. Yeah, oh, it's crazy, it. isn't it? It's nuts. <laughs> yeah, no, incredible effort from him. Six-stroke lead ahead of Sepp Straka, Tom Kim, John Rahm, and Aussie Jason Day. Incredible. Two really, really big stats that I saw that just epitomized how good a win this was for him, though. Three bunkers he hit all tournament. And when you consider those Lynx courses over in the UK, just how many bunkers there are, to only hit three is just incredible. Yes, there's some uh, tricky courses there. So, yep, fair effort. There are. And then the other big one, 59 of 60 putts from 10 feet in all tournament. Those are the sorts of numbers you just don't see, especially with Lynx golf. So to be that accurate, Absolutely a deserved winner. Just played the course so much better than everyone else. And yeah, congratulations to Brian Harmon. Brilliant effort. Indeed. Now, Nath, I do want to talk about Wimbledon, but I will throw to you very, very quickly for a couple of reasons. Firstly, very unusual for us to be recording on a Monday. I'll let you sort of fill the, the listeners in on that. And secondly, I believe you have a certain feline friend that has just joined you. Yes, a wildcat of sorts. Yeah, so Monday night, no quiz anymore. We were doing it for eight years. We decided to go out on top, and we did. Our last two weeks, we had 21 and 20 tables, respectively, or something like that. And drawing 20 tables on a Monday night is no mean feat. I've already been reliably informed that the people that have replaced us have got half that many people there tonight. So, But even 10 on a Monday is pretty good, good to be honest. But yeah, I've emceed over no. 300 quizzes. End of an era. It is sad, but uh, all good things must come to an end. They absolutely must. And I'm, I honestly have to commend both you and the other two friends of ours who were just, yeah, sensational, just a, a well-oiled machine pretty much right from the start, which is unusual, yeah, very unusual for a quiz to be that quality right from the start and to keep going for as many years as you did. It's uh, yeah, it's, it's a real testament to just how good it was and how well it was presented. Well, it's very kind of you to say, my man, very kind indeed. Yeah. And then the other one, and it did put a bit of a spanner in the works with my preparation yesterday. I didn't really get much done at all because we heard this meowing and a little stray cat in our shed and not microchipped. No one's reported it, called rangers, knocked on doors around the neighbourhood, posted on Facebook. So I don't know what's going on. So we may or may not. We, we still haven't decided if we'll keep it, but uh, yeah, we'll see. But yeah, a little bundle of joy. Right. Well, I've 
certainly I've taken the liberty of looking for some names for you for the cat. <laughs> so there's a reason. Okay, go on. <laughs> there, There is a reason. And look, at the end of the day, it's probably a female. So this a lot of this stuff it is, is all it completely is. relevant. It definitely is, okay. yes. Well, yeah. <laughs> well, we're, we're going we're to use bloke names because unfortunately that's where most of the stuff is. Now, special shout out to Robbie. He's come up with a classic, Purvis Ellison. Oh, yes. That very one. good. Yes. <laughs> classic. Now, a couple of other ones. Uh, Kawhi Leopard. Oh, yes. Yeah, no, the pattern's about right there too, actually. Yeah, good one. Good one. Yeah. I never would, though. After what he did to the Spurs, I never would. True. But, very, uh, very true. Yeah. Uh, Lion Williamson. <laughs> or Gary Lyon. Yep. Or Nathan Lyon. Kareem Abdul-Jaguar. <laughs> yep. Thought that was pretty good. Poor George. <laughs> yep, nice. Nice. Playoff P. Christoph's Perzingis. <laughs> and uh, Patrick McClaw. Oh, he's done well. He's done very there, well. There are, yeah, look, could keep going all day. Scott, Scotty Kitten. That could also work. <laughs> oh, dear. And a bit of a left fielder one, Lonzo Furball. Very nice. Very nice. <laughs> you need to think of a few female ones because she is definitely a female. But but no, I like it. Good good effort there. Uh, and so- and if people are listening at home need some name inspirations, she's just giving you a bunch. Sue eats bird. <laughs> well, that one works on a number of levels when you think about it. But I won't go too far into that. No pun that's, intended. That's all I've got. Yeah, that's all I've yep. got in the female ones. Very good. No, seriously, Nath, what have you got? Well, I've got a couple of quick hits like I often do. So I don't know if you saw Frenchman Leon Marchand smashed Michael Phelps' 400-metre world record that had lasted for 20 years after going 4 minutes and 2 seconds, 0.5 in Japan after beating Phelps' 403.84. Want to guess how many world records the former 23-time Olympic gold medalist still has? None. None, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I read something about him officially being wiped from the record books. Isn't that nuts? Lionel Messi's first ever goal for Inter Miami was a game winner. Pretty impressive. Yeah, in front of some royalty as well with uh, David Beckham and LeBron James in the crowd. <laughs> well, uh, Beckham owns the team, doesn't he? He brought him over, I think. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. There's a very interesting story in the NFL percolating about running backs. Now, we won't get into this today. We might come back to it in a future episode. But the average salary for a running back in the NFL is $1.81 million, whereas the average salary for a kicker is $2.26 million. So it's almost like there's an antitrust um, operation by all the owners against the running backs in the NFL. It's nuts. Yeah, that is crazy, isn't it? And then I wanted to finish with some FIFA Women's World Cup. Now, unfortunately, it's off-field rather than on-field. And I don't know if you've followed it much so far. Obviously, the Aussies had a win 1-0 in their first match, which was good against Ireland. And my partner and I bought some tickets. We'll be going in a couple of weeks or a week or so, I think it is. A weekend, Saturday, I think it is, actually. But this one's from BBC World Service journalist, and the name wasn't mentioned, but probably just as well. So he asked Moroccan captain Jelaine Chebek, and I quote, we know that gay marriage is illegal. Are there any gay players in the team? And what is it like for them? Now, fair dinkum, what a fucking stupid question, honestly. So Morocco are the first Arabian country to take part in the Women's World Cup. It should be a time of celebration. And instead, this fuckwit comes in and... Ask the dumbest question. Like homosexuality is illegal in Morocco. It's punishable by up to three to five years imprisonment and a fine of 1,200 dirhams. Now, that's not a ton of money, but it's illegal there. So why you would ask that question and put someone, I, I just, I think that's pretty poor form. Yeah, that's utterly ridiculous. And we've seen a lot of really stupid questions from that all the way to Manus Labuschagne being asked if Australia were trying to win the test 
instead of just basically praying for rain. We'll get to that eventually. Yes, we will. And I have to say, to uh, add insult to injury, Morocco copped a 6 nothing hiding from Germany in their first game. So not exactly the sort of start they were hoping for. But look, there's a long way to go, obviously. A lot of games to be played. Australia should come out of their pool with Canada, Nigeria, and obviously the Republic of Ireland, who they've already beaten. So yeah, you'd like to think the Aussies would do quite well. But yeah, long, long way to go. So far, so good. But yeah, looking forward to getting out to the match. And apparently all the Perth games are very close to sold out, which is fantastic considering there are no Aussie or New Zealand teams playing. So yeah, that'd be a bit of fun. It would be. I did also just quickly want to go back. You're obviously mentioning the the swimming efforts, the world records. Been a lot of world records actually falling. Uh, Ariana Titmus had a, I think it was the 400 meter she absolutely smashed the world record, beat that by a good half a body length. I did I think see that. The, yeah, I think the women's 4 by 100 relay smashed that as well. Uh, there'll be several other ones in there that I'm forgetting, so apologies to those swimmers. But yeah, very, very great start in the pool, and the Aussies absolutely smashing it, as you'd expect. Yes, indeed. So Wimbledon, Stewie, I've got to admit, I didn't watch much, and I kind of wish I did now, because that final sounded like an absolute barn burner. Yeah, well, I mean... Maybe not so much the women's, but yeah, the men's was crazy. And I have to say, I was 0 of 2 with my finals. I predicted Ons Jabur and Novak Djokovic would win, and both of them went down. As you say, yeah, the men's final was utterly ridiculous. I did just quickly want to talk about the women's for a second, though. Thoughts out to Ons Jabur. 6-4, 6-4 loss to Marquita Vondrasova. In her first six matches, this sort of tells you, I guess, how much maybe stage fright, deer in headlights sort of thing Jabur seems to get in these finals. So Jabur was, if you look at, say, the the winners to the errors, in the first six matches of that tournament, Jabur was a plus 48 winners to errors. So an average of about eight more winners a game compared to errors. She finished minus six in the final. So the Gee. only match that she finished with a negative in that. Wrong time to hit poor form. Yeah. And then you could see on the other side of the net, Vondrasova, I mean, she was completely free of the weight of expectations. I don't think many people expected her to win it. She swung freely and won it fairly comfortably in the end. 6-4-6-4 doesn't sound, I guess, like a blowout, but it was fairly comfortable, uh, I think. And for Jabour, she's now 0-3 in Grand Slam finals. I kind of worry that mentally she may not recover from this one. And as I said before, a little bit of a deer in headlights in these finals. I'm going to do her a favor, though, and I'm going to do an Ash Barty jinx for her. She will never win a Grand Slam. (laughs) Yep, there you go. And then she'll never retire young either, yeah. Yes, yeah. uh, it's it's guaranteed Jabur will probably win the US Open now. But uh, yeah, look, great effort from her. Really, really great couple of weeks. And, and obviously for Vondrasova as the champion, thoroughly deserved as well as I think they said the first unseeded champion. I don't know if it was in the women's draw because I seem to remember Goran Ivanisevic winning it from the wild card in that win that he had over Pat Rafter. Yeah, a long time ago now. I remember watching it, but yeah. Yeah. Absolute cracker. Now, in the men's, as you say, yeah, Carlos Alcaraz covers from an absolute disaster of a first set, loses it 6-1 to Novak Djokovic, but in four hours and 43 minutes, 1-6-7-6-6-1-3-6-6-4, incredible. Now, the thing that I find most amazing about this, I always talk about how Djokovic seems to play and win the big points and the big moments better than his opponent. That's one of the big keys to why he is such a, an incredible champion, probably the GOAT in terms of men's tennis anyway. And in this final, there was, I think, four main examples that I could really think of that showed how Alcaraz really kind of flipped the script on this one. Because 
as I say, it's usually those big points that Djokovic wins. Now, obviously, yeah, said the first set, he he won at 6-1. That's the sort of start that he usually goes on and dominates from. And at 6-1, I kind of considered turning it off because I thought, oh, this is just way too easy for him. There's way too many errors coming off, off Alcaraz's racket. It's not looking pretty. And I, I came through and told my wife, I was like, well, that was domination. I might come to bed. I might give it maybe five minutes and see what happens. It's so funny you say that, Shui, because literally multiple people have said to me, what? <laughs> it was the dumbest decision I could have made. So there. Yeah, well, I mean, usually that's the time where he'll come in and he'll maybe break early in the second set and then just run away with it. And Alcaraz just kind of, as I said, he flipped the script. He got back into points. He started you know, hitting a few more winners, just playing a little bit smarter and a little bit more composed. And then the second really big moment was in the tiebreak. So Djokovic is up 6-5. He's got a set point. And he gets into the rally on Alcaraz's serve. He hit two backhands into the net in consecutive points before Alcaraz passed him down the line to win the set. Those are those spots up set point or six all in a, a tie break. Djokovic never misses those shots. He he usually makes the opponent go for something. They then miss and he wins the point. So that was a really, really key point, I guess, for Alcaraz really more than Djokovic being able to stay in that set at a point where most of the time people will generally lose. And so incredible effort from him to then take that second set. Then in the fifth game of the third set, so I don't, you've probably heard about this one, a 26-minute service game <laughs> from Djokovic. Yeah, unreal. It was unbelievable. 13 juices. Djokovic saved six break points before he finally lost the game on the seventh. And again, that is the sort of service game that Djokovic always finds a way out of. He'll find a big ace. It might be not so much an ace, but one that the player has to put up a ridiculously high lob to just get it back into play, and then Djokovic puts it away. But somehow Alcaraz found a way to win that game, goes up 3-2, consolidates to go up 4-2, and then runs away with the third set. And then the last one is the second game of the fifth set. So Djokovic is up one nothing. He's held serve. He just got out of a pretty tough service game. I think he faced at least one, maybe two break points in that game. And I think he had Alcaraz maybe 15-40. Alcaraz saves one, gets to 30-40. Djokovic has him hemmed into the baseline. And then Alcaraz puts up this fairly average defensive lob down the sideline. And then the ball that Djokovic would usually put away, he hits into the net. So Alcaraz all of a sudden gets it back to Deuce. He goes on to win the game and ultimately pulls away from what looked like a tiring Djokovic at the end. And I'd actually said, as the clock ticks past 1am, if Djokovic breaks to go up 2-0, I am going to bed. And again, Alcaraz just wins that big point, wins the moment, and goes on and wins the match. Sensational effort. And I guess youth beating experience a little bit, running out of steam, the Joker? Yeah, a little bit. As I say, in that fifth set, that was where you could kind of see. And and so it should. I mean, you're talking about a 36-year-old guy. And as much as Djokovic looks after his body better than probably anyone that's ever played the game, it's a 20-year-old. A 20-year-old should be able to outlast a 36-year-old under any sort of circumstances. And especially a player with the quality and caliber of an Alcaraz who just has all the shots in the game. And you could see it. The body language changed. Djokovic smashed a racket to pieces on the net yeah, post. And I saw that. <laughs> all of a sudden, there's maybe this glimmer of hope that one of the new breed might actually be ready to take over. And if I'm not mistaken, he's like Nadal. It's not even his best surface. So look out at the French Open for years to come. And, and that was one of the comments that Djokovic made in the post-game speech. He said, I, I actually only thought I had to worry about you 
at the French Open and the hard court at the US, but now I've got to worry about Wimbledon, which was a, a really nice humanizing moment for Djokovic. And I know that we've given a lot of grief to him over the past, what, how many years, but it was really nice to see that human moment, him it's kind of welling up a little bit, even though he's won so many grand slams to lose, it shows how much these things still mean to him. And whether that's just a narcissistic sort of thing where, you know, he just wants to win everything. So he finishes so far ahead of Federer and Nadal. It, it may be that, but I'll I tell you what, Alcaraz at this stage has two and he's only 20. He can win a couple a year until he's 32. He'll go ahead. Yeah. Well, that's an interesting way of putting it, isn't it? Yeah. He's so young. He is. And, and longevity, said, it's so, I mean, so often people are put on the pedestal and, and dubbed the next great big thing. And so often they fail to, to accomplish that. So long way to go, but he's got all the skills and all the tools, doesn't he? Well, and this is the thing. And I guess if you look at players, so let's say, for example, Federer dominated Wimbledon. Nadal dominated the French Open. Djokovic has done really well on, on most surfaces, but he certainly has been more dominant at the Oz Open and Wimbledon in the past, but it does look like Alcaraz can play any surface. Nathan, I just wanted to hit you up with one ridiculously incredible stat just to really outline how incredible this result is for Alcaraz. And it comes down to the fact that when Djokovic wins the first set in a Grand Slam, he is 380 wins and eight losses. I saw that stat. I did see that one. That's unreal, isn't it? Uh, it's <laughs> getting that early advantage and just putting the foot on the throat and winning nearly every time. Are you telling me that stat was out there? Because I spent like an hour going through every single Grand Slam he's been. Oh, really? To I, I yep. can't remember. Did I hear it on the radio? I don't think it was Twitter. I, I mean, I didn't remember the number, but I did I did hear the... Oh, maybe it was you when you and I have chatted when we're not recording. I can't remember where I heard it, but I did I did hear that stat. It's unreal. It is unreal. And I'll quickly run you through all four of them because it, it's incredible. So at the Australian Open, he's 82-2. and two. He's lost once to Vavrinka and once he retired. 154-3 and three at the French Open. He retired once, lost to Jürgen Meltzer and Stan Vavrinka. In the US Open, he's 66 and 1. Again, he's only lost to Vavrinka. So Stan's had the number over him a little bit. Stan the man. And this was 78 and 2 at Wimbledon. Only the first time he's actually lost to a player after winning the first set. The yeah, other the... time he retired. To... Oh, I thought you were going to say the neck thing when he hit the ball person in the neck. No, that was actually, he was down 5 6 in the first set. So he actually hadn't won this, the ah, first set. Okay. One, but yeah. Okay. 97.9% of the time when he wins the first set, he wins the match. So incredible effort from Alcaraz. Oh, just even more astonishing when you put it in those terms. Hats off. Yeah. Amen. So, Shui, we've got to talk about the biggest news in the cricket world at the moment. Major League Cricket has begun. Excellent. Excellent. I don't know if you've seen any. No, I haven't. I actually didn't know it had started, if I'm honest. It's been mixed results. There's been there's been some high scores like San Francisco five for two fifteen, Mumbai Indians New York five for one ninety three. Mumbai Indians what? New York, yeah. Oh, come on. Well, they're all owned by. So there's the Super Kings as well. They're they're, they're all owned by IPL, or well, most if not all of them are owned by IPL. Look, my T Twenty following is well known. I kind of just follow World Cups at this stage now. I'm a bit over it because of the great game of Test cricket. We've reclaimed the ashes, mate. But I think we've got to go all the way back to the start and back to those selections. And you were pretty close on with your predictions. 
In terms of the lineup that Australia put out, yeah, the only thing I didn't commit to was Warner over Harris, and I think that was probably the the betting money would have been on Warner retaining his spot. So yeah, I, I think they were always going to get rid of Murphy. I just I couldn't see them working him into the squad, and Boland was rubbish. So yeah, have to go with the front line fast bowlers who were mostly shit. And Mitch Marsh again, I think you know now that the matches in the rearview mirror. I think you almost have to pick him for the oval again because I think he's done a really good job and that was a pretty nuggety knock. It was what, 30-odd off 100-odd? So pretty pretty good knock to support Marnus there to help save the test. Yeah, and that's off a 51 in the first dig as well. So that's right, yeah. Pretty, yeah, pretty solid. And certainly, again, in the first innings, no one really was able to go on with it. So you can't really fault him for getting to 50 and then getting out. It happened to... Oh, you look at Labashane 51, Smith 41, 48 for Travis Head, 36 to Mitchell Stark, although he was not out, and a 32 to Warner. So a lot of those 30 to 50s, but just no one going on with it. Yeah, lots of starts on a wicket that, well, it was pretty clear once we saw England bat that it wasn't enough in that first innings. Oh, not even close, honestly. <laughs> just not even in the same stratosphere. So you mentioned some of the bowling changes there, Stewie. Although England did have a sensational first innings, and there were some massive scores and a lot of blokes looked pretty bloody good. I did think the Aussie bowlers bowled a lot better. And I think a lot of credit has to be given to the English batters because I think it was a tighter bowling performance from the Australians after a pretty loose leads where we kind of played into their hands. Yeah. I mean, look, if I'm brutally honest, I kind of saw the game getting away and I'd had a lot of late nights in the lead up to that. So I kind of didn't watch as much as I would have liked. But, I mean, you only have to really look at the scorecard and see, again, how many of those guys went on. Like, we had a couple of guys make 50. They had, what, apart from Crawley's 189, five guys make at least 50. And Bearstow would have made a ton had he not run out of partners at the end. So it was, you know, as much as we maybe bowled a little bit better, to concede 592 runs is, it goes to show that basketball can work. And not only that, the I think it was the dismissal that got Root. I'm pretty sure it was Hazelwood's dismissal of Root. It stayed so low. <laughs> it was it was not a normal delivery. And so that was just one of those chaos balls, really. So even Root can probably consider himself a bit unlucky. And he was 84 off 95 at the time. That Crawley knock was magnificent. I did watch a lot of it. It wasn't fun as an Aussie supporter, but you got to watch the, the bad with the good sometimes. And yeah, as I say, I thought we'd bowled a lot better. And I thought Hazelwood, obviously, with a firefer was was quite good. Cam Green looked a little bit better. He's looked he's looked good with the ball. I think with the bat, Cam Green's looked a bit shaky. I know, who was it? I think it was Virat Coley saying that you're never truly in in England. Cam Green has never looked in any time I've watched him bat the whole series, I've got to say. But yeah, I thought he bowled okay. And as you say, Johnny Bairstow stranded on 99. But in my opinion, they should have declared after he got his 50. I think that was their best chance at getting a win. And... It's really odd because they declared on the first day of the first test. So it's not like something they wouldn't have done. And Ben Stokes apparently scoffed at people when they asked about it. But I think that would have been a really good aggressive move, knowing the weather was coming. Now, it was kind of switched from what they originally predicted. They predicted that actually day four would be a washout and day five would get more time. In the end, it turned out to be the opposite of that. But knowing that rain was coming and everyone knew it, we all knew it. I think they should have declared when Bairstow got his 50. 
Yeah, I think we had very similar ideas. I think you said 130, I said 150 as the lead. I think either of those numbers would have probably been enough. And what, I mean, what was the lead at the end? About 280 odd. So the reason I said 130 is because I think that was around when he, he got his 50. I think there was a good reason why I said that. There must have been some moment in the game is why I picked that time. And you would have thought with something like that, in once you get the lead to maybe 100 or so, that would be the time to sort of go, okay. We're three down, or sorry, they were four down at that stage, I should say. They should have looked at it and gone, okay, we're four down. We've got Ben Stokes and Zach Crawley who's set. Now's the time to maybe say, right, let's give it 20 overs. Let's just play it like a T20. See if we can knock out maybe another 150 to 160. We've got plenty of time to bowl at them, but they got greedy. But not only that, if they have to bat again, they have to bat again. They might be chasing 50 or 60 for argument's sake. You know what I mean? They still had another innings up their sleeve. So that's why I think they should have declared. Yeah, 100%. They didn't leave themselves enough time. Only got to bowl 71 overs at the Aussies, which, okay, it's still a lot of time and it's still potentially enough time to bowl a team out. And look, you'd probably back yourself based on certainly how well they'd bowled up to that point. But yeah, I mean, it probably one of the all-time knocks from Manus Labuschagne in saving the test. Uh, an incredible effort from Mitch Marsh in seeing off a number of deliveries as well and, and going against his natural play. I mean, he's obviously an aggressive player, likes to really feel bad on ball, but to only go at 29 runs per 100 balls is a, a big thing for him. And yeah, they ran out of time. And we've got to also acknowledge the fact that at the end of the day, they had to bowl 13 overs of spin because of Joel Wilson in his sunglasses, no less, bringing out the light meter and saying it was too dark for pace. I'm so glad you brought that up because I think I made a comment on one of the previous episodes that we did. And I, in all honesty, got Joel Wilson and Paul Wilson mixed up. I was thinking, why do you hate Blocker Wilson? What's he done to you? But I completely mixed the two guys up. I don't know how I managed that. <laughs> so my apologies to Paul Wilson. And yes, the other ones are shit. Now, one thing I did really just want to mention once again is just how much that English bowling lineup really looked like the winning formula. Now, obviously, we know about the batting. We know how deep they bat. Realistically, they bat pretty much all the way down to sort of 9 or 10, and then you've got Anderson sitting there at the bottom. But again, the extra pace of Wood, the yeah, again, a little bit more pace and a bit more variation in Chris Wokes. Even Joe Root looked pretty handy with the ball. He did. And, he did. Yeah. And then you see Anderson and Broad and Ali basically doing not a whole heap yeah anderson in particular anderson's had a shocking series hasn't he he really he oh, has. i don't think they can pick him for the fifth test but it might be his final i don't know would it be yeah, a farewell test they probably will just purely because of the fact that he's the most economical bowler that they've got maybe can tie up an end because they certainly know that we're not going to go after him but he certainly just doesn't look threatening enough to take wickets so maybe no, no. that's the way they look at it anderson ties up one end and then they maybe have Wood or Wokes coming in from the other end and kind of creating that chaos. And I know that both teams have had their injury problems, and I know that we've talked about this before, but it's no surprise that the Aussies have struggled without Nathan Lyon. He's just so important to our attack and so important at stemming runs. And it's it's a massive out. It's not McGrath in 2005, but, geez, it's fucking close. It's pretty close, yeah. I mean, you've got to look at, you know, you sort of said in the last episode, it's incredibly important to have a frontline spinner. And unfortunately, we don't have a frontline spinner 
certainly that we can go to right now. I mean, Murphy at some stage may turn into that frontline spinner, but certainly not for this series. And having to rely on varying types of fast bowlers, there just wasn't really enough variety to give any sort of major headaches to a batting lineup that was just on fire. And I think, I don't know, I prefer seeing Manus than Trav Head. Trav Head bowled, what, 10 overs or so, I think? Yeah, seven for 52 runs. Only seven, was it? Okay, yeah, but he was pretty expensive, yeah. I prefer seeing Manus bowl those spin overs when we got a part-timer, but yeah, that's just me. No, fair enough. But And the thing is, what happened to Travis Head is exactly what I think would have happened to Murphy, which is exactly why I didn't think they could pick him. And I was probably right in that regard, but I don't know if it would have mattered whether Nathan Lyon would have done much better. Who knows? Oh, I think he would have. The other thing about Marnus that I forgot to mention before, I don't know if you, did you see his knock after his hundred? He was so loose after his ton. It's like everything changed. And I know this often happens with batters, but fucking hell, like he was batting to save the match basically. And oh, just another, another wicket before T that can be so damaging. Luckily it wasn't worse. Yeah, well, this is it. It then exposes that middle and lower middle order to a team with their tail up. And again, to be giving away wickets to Joe Root. Now, look, as I said, Root did bowl really well, and he does seem to have that habit of being able to just bob up and take a wicket. But yeah, as you say, throwing it away when you've played such a beautiful knock up to that point, and then all of a sudden, Marsh and Green. And look, Green was lucky to survive. I think it was a, a court behind that was fairly close just before the end of play. That wicket goes down, and then all of a sudden, there's only four wickets left. And if they get back on, they might only need half an hour to run through the tail. So a little bit lucky in that regard. Is that the Joe Root drop? Was that that one? Or where it kind of got grounded? Uh, I actually didn't see it because I was I was asleep. I needed oh, okay. sleep. Like I was so, I was so far. In fact, I'm still so far behind, if I'm honest. But Well, you're like a normal uh, person, yeah, Shui. There's nothing wrong with sleeping normal person hours on a school night. You do not need to excuse no, yourself but- for that. <laughs> there are certain things that I always have to stay up for French Open and Wimbledon in the tennis and then obviously the Ashes and Carbody World Cup <laughs> which I will get to this time promise, promise when is it held when's it held no bloody idea it was probably last week <laughs> it probably is uh, uh, honestly wouldn't wouldn't surprise me good times I've actually just had a quick look Nate by the way the, the Carbody World Cup looks to be coming in 2024 don't know exactly when, doesn't have any sort of dates listed just yet, but I'm sure I'll miss it by a couple of weeks, as I alluded to before. <laughs> there you go. Well, good on you for checking. So, we've retained the ashes, Stewie. England seem to we forget have... that Manchester has tied the SCG for grounds that have lost a full day's play to rain with 25. That is not the sort of company that you want to be in because Sydney has a very, very bad reputation. But, uh, yeah, look, it's one of these things. Anytime you're playing cricket in an English summer, there is always the possibility of losing large amounts of time, sometimes even full days. And this is what happens. Did you see there was someone watering the field while it was raining? <laughs> what? Uh, I liked it on our Twitter. Well, by the time we upload this, it won't be called Twitter. It'll be called X. Uh, we might be X members of it soon enough. But yeah, there was, there was a picture of a bloke watering the very close to the pitch while it was pissing down with rain. Clever. That's clever. Fight water with water. <laughs> Something like that, yeah. <laughs> they should have got out the old Caribbean squidgies and... Uh, kind of done worse. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, in Artega, yeah. Absolutely. 
So, Nath, I guess there's a little bit of stuff to talk about in the aftermath. And a couple of things I did want to talk about involve one of our favourite blokes of all time, one Piers Morgan. Oh, yes. Yes. Big fan. He has given us a couple of, I think, absolute beauties to talk about. The first one is yet another ludicrously funny bit of hypocrisy, saying that it would be, quote, unjust if the weather decided the ashes. Did you see the tweet that somebody dug up of him from 10 years ago? Merv Hughes, no less, mate. Was it Merv that brought it up, was it? Well, that's the one I have here where he's written short memory, flog. <laughs> ah. <laughs> and then he's, got, then he's got two screenshots from 2013, uh, November 2013. I'm dancing in LA, willing for it to fall. And then boom, I guess when the rain started happening. And that was a different time. So yeah, the two one that separate says- occasions. Yeah, boom, hashtag rain, hashtag ashes on the fifth day of the third test. Funnily enough, in Old Trafford as well. That was an interesting series because Australia lost the first test by 14 runs, really close. Got absolutely smashed in the second test. It was 347 runs, that one. But the third test, we were absolutely dominating. England needed 294 runs, seven wickets in hand. So still they had a bit of batting left, but we had also declared twice. So we were well ahead in the game. And yeah, Piers Morgan celebrating like crazy after the rain effectively quashed any sort of chance that we had of even keeping the series alive. And I don't know, he was he quoting Stuart Broad? Because Stuart Broad used the word unjust. So in the Daily Mail, in his column, he wrote, and I quote, sitting in the changing room, watching the rain fall on Saturday, there was a feeling it would be unjust if the weather had a decisive say, because it's been such an incredible few weeks to be a part of. It would be such a damp squib. Such an unemotional way for a series between two great rivals to be defined. I think he meant to say damp squid. IT crowd reference there for those that will get it. Uh, Yeah, so it's it's not the only one. I've watched the IT crowd and I still don't recognise that one. Okay, well, there you go. That's just Jen arguing about the phrase damp squib. But uh, yeah, it's... Okay, uh, fair enough. Yeah, he's not the only one. And then the other other quotes I love of Ben Stokes, England are not a results-driven team. And he was proud of the manner in which the team had taken the game on from ball one. And there are bigger things for England than winning the Ashes. Yeah, righto. righto. I can agree with half of that. I, I certainly agree with him applauding the players for taking the game on the way they did. But those other two comments just sound very much like somebody in grade three that's lost and gone, well, I wasn't even trying anyway. <laughs> and here's the other one. So someone asked him if he regretted some of his captaincy decisions earlier in the series. And he said, no, you can't change what's happened in the past. No, you can't change it, but you can certainly learn from it. I've never understood people that say they have no regrets. If you have no regrets, you're basically a stubborn twat. Yeah. Or you think what you did was right and don't really know what you're doing. Well, yeah, look, true. I think you could certainly make a case that he's certainly out-captained one Pat Cummins in the last last couple of tests. But yes, definitely. Oh, only marginally. Only marginally, I reckon. Oh, I think he absolutely smashed him at Old Trafford. Yeah, <laughs> well, frankly. yeah, but that, that declaration in the first test and then the lack of declaration in this one, I think the yeah. captaincy is maybe closer than what some people would say. Oh, I think Cummins had an absolute shocker, if I'm honest. But anyway. Oh, he did. He did. Uh... He did. But Ben Stokes' captaincy didn't score the massive runs. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's... It, it, yeah, okay, it's they not a 10 out of 10 or anything. Uh, look, they certainly deserve a lot of credit. They should probably be up. And this is the crux of it for me. They, they're almost completely disregarding the fact that there have been three results. They could have very easily been 2-1 up themselves, even 3-0 up themselves. So to just focus on the... They seem to point the finger a lot and not look in the mirror enough. 
And that actually brings me to the next Piers Morgan quote that I wanted to bring up. He says, for fuck's sake, has there ever been a less deserved retention of the ashes? From the Bearstow debacle to this rain-soaked fiasco, it's an absolute farce that smirking Australia has ended up with the urn still in their hands, England comfortably the better side, as this test shows, gutting. And it does pose the question, is he right in terms of have England been the better side? Well, for starters, that's partly why I said the captains are maybe closer than what people are saying. But it's such a funny game, cricket, isn't it? It's a cruel game. The great cricketers' last couple of match day reports were piss funny. I look forward to watching the day five report as well. I don't know. It's been close. They have looked better at times. They probably have been the better team, but they haven't won. So the results are the results. The proof's in the pudding. Yep. I mean, look, I actually, I do agree with that. I think England have been the better side, but they didn't quite adapt quick enough in the first couple of tests. And I think that's what cost them. And yeah, they win one of those and they probably win the whole series. Well, I think they were just too helter-skelter. You can't be in fifth gear the entire time. It just plays into the opposition's hands. Yeah. Yeah. I think they hit the accelerator at the right time in the old Trafford test. I think they played really, really well in the third test as well, but as you say, yeah, those those little uh, moments where they maybe drop it down a couple of gears, just work through their innings a little bit better, and we are. We're probably talking about England winning it fairly comfortably. One less catch on the boundary, maybe two, and they, they're probably ahead. But yep. that's their own fault. It's their own fault. Exactly right. Exactly right. We do have to applaud England, though, don't we, Nath? Oh, they've been fantastic. It's been a brilliant series. Probably my most favourite Ashes since 2005 to watch. And I've watched a fair bit. So it's been an excellent series. And both teams have had moments of agony, ecstasy, and just pure shit too, haven't they, really? But England have been fantastic. And look, as I said, it wasn't easy to watch as a fan of the opposition. But they did bat superbly well in that first innings in Manchester. They can hold their heads very high there. I look, I honestly think that some of these innings, like what Crawley did, like what Stokes did four years ago, like the VVS Lachman innings that we talk about so often as well, I think some of those innings are probably some of my favourite moments in cricket. And I think as I get older, I'm able to separate, I guess, maybe church from state, if that's the right way to, to sort of put it. I'm able to sort of look at these innings and... I guess, just be able to appreciate that even though it's not Australia dominating, it's just an incredible innings match, whatever it happens to be. And if we come out on the wrong side of it, well, so be it. But yeah, look, it has been a brilliant Ashes series. I agree entirely. And look, you always talk about how it's been that death by a thousand cuts as far as test cricket goes. I think Basball could potentially be the sort of thing that saves test cricket. Oh, it could help save it. Absolutely. But There's an interesting quote from Jonathan Liu in The Guardian, and it's a little bit lengthy, but I'll read it. There's a school of thought out there that if you appreciated England's style of cricket when they were winning, then it's unfair to criticise when it fails to come off. This is a little bit like arguing that if you've ever enjoyed a meal at a restaurant, you're not entitled to complain when they give you E. coli on your next visit. It's just the way they cook. They're taking a whole (laughs) new approach to gastronomy. And ultimately, when you get down to it, is there really any difference between fine dining and violent diarrhoea? Interesting take. Incredible. No, that that's a that definitely is a fair point. I mean, we were certainly quick to sort of giggle at the I, I guess the mixed results that they had in the first couple of tests. But ben I think sometimes being able to 
Yeah, but being able to take a step back and look at this the whole series holistically, I guess, that's where you can maybe appreciate a little bit more what they're trying to do in England and, and I guess how successful they've been. And, and look, they've been successful against a number of nations and they've proven that basketball can work against the number one ranked nation in the world. They've died by the sword they live by as well, haven't they? So yep. it's just been a bit stubborn. I think, like I said, to use that gears analogy, you've got to switch gears every now and then. You can't be pedal to the metal the full time. It's not going to work all the time. Fair call. But I've never prayed for rain. It came. Okay, so be it. I'm happy we've retained the ashes. Tim Luderman had an interesting tweet. Retaining the ashes due to a washout is somewhat of a hollow feeling. Kind of like winning a World Cup due to an overthrow of deflection. <laughs> True. Yep, 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 yep. That is uh, that is gold. Yeah. <laughs> uh, look, you never want to win like that. But I think given the way that the English crowd, the English media, all of them have treated the Aussies, I always find it so funny everyone whinging about us being cheaters when the only team that really actually has any sort of grounds to use that is South Africa. Yeah, well, well, we won't relitigate the whole glass houses thing again. But yes, South Africa and New Zealand for the underarm ball certainly have yes. the most reason but to feel aggrieved. Even then, I mean, that, that was 50 years ago. Let it go. Well, and that was a one day or two. So the stakes were a little bit yeah. less. Yeah. Anyway, yes, again, we won't go into all of that again now. So, look, we've had our time, (laughs) but so have they. So, yeah, glass houses, like we say. Mm -hmm. So the fifth test starts on Thursday. Hopefully we'll have this uploaded by the time that occurs. As I said before, I think you've got to pit Mitch Marsh. I was there in 2019 when he had that fantastic bowling performance there at the Oval. So, yeah, I think I'd like to maybe see the team unchanged. I don't know about you. Yeah, I mean, what changes can you make? That's the big question. Well, that's it. I just don't really see much in the way of options, unless you maybe try Murphy again, but I just don't know. Who can you take out? I think the the worst bowler that we had was probably Pat Cummins, but he would never lose his spot because he's a captain. I think you almost have to take out Green, if anyone, but yeah. They've clearly shown they have no faith in Murphy. I'll be very surprised if Murphy comes back in. Yeah, no, it it probably is one of those ones where you just have to say, look, enough guys made a start in that first innings. If one or two of them go on and make a big ton instead of getting out for 40 or 50, maybe we're the ones that make 490 or 590, sorry, I should say. So there's plenty of opportunity for us to improve. England maybe can't do much better than that, hopefully, and maybe it's a little bit more even... Who knows? But I think both teams probably go in unchanged. Hopefully it's a good match and it would be great to see us actually win the Ashes. But the cool thing is that it will be a guaranteed decade minimum that England can have the Ashes because the next one will be in the summer of 2025 here. And they haven't held it since 2015. Brilliant. So we'll do some quick hits on footy and basketball combined. Let's start with the footy. I was at the Swans and Dockers game on Saturday. It was a magnificent night for it. Couldn't have asked for better conditions. So that was a lot of fun and I'm glad I was there. Or the result. Yes. Well, the result was good for the Swans. I almost guarantee we'll finish ninth, but we definitely got destiny in our own hands. Our run home is very interesting. A lot of those eight point games, as you call them, with teams around us on the ladder. And there is a logjam on the ladder from what, fourth all the way down to 13th, I think. We've got Essendon, GWS, Gold Coast, Adelaide, and Melbourne. So win four out of those five, we might be in. When we were looking at this about a month ago, though, Nath, if you looked at the run 
we were sort of looking at it going, well, after obviously the demolition of the Eagles, though, you had to play Geelong, you had to play Richmond, you had to play the Bulldogs, and the Dockers over here could be anything. And you got through that fairly unscathed. Okay, lost to Richmond, but beat the Bulldogs, beat the Dockers, got a draw. I think two and a half wins out of those four would be well and truly an acceptable result. And now, yeah, as you say, the future is in your hands with four fairly winnable games and then Melbourne at home, you just never know. And we should have won the Geelong and Richmond games too. They were both games that were a bit disappointing in the end. So, yeah, and we've got a lot of guys coming back too. So we've had Tom McCartan back. We've had Rampy back. So, yeah, the team's a bit more stable. I think it'll be interesting. I think it'll be a very exciting run home. There's some big games. There's a showdown. Port and Collingwood on the weekend was fantastic. Unfortunately, it was kind of marred by the fact that Rioli copped some abuse for his, well, I think it was a slap. I don't know if you saw that incident. I did see a slap. And look, he deserves abuse, but not that kind of abuse. No, not racial. Yeah. Did you see there was some bloke using his construction company Instagram account? Like, really? What a fucking idiot. How much business are you going to lose? Yeah. That's someone who's really committing to the racism. Yeah. Yeah, that's just, oh, what a fool. But yeah, no, we hate to see it. Shouldn't be done. Yeah, jokes aside, like there's no place for it. And look, as much as I don't like the guy for all the stuff that he's done, like leaving the club after all the stuff that we did to help him through it, he still doesn't deserve any sort of racial abuse. No one does. does. Yeah, no one does. Did you see that Collingwood have won eight in a row at Adelaide Oval? Eight. Yeah, they travel well. Oh, as much as we just. That's nuts. So I'm saying, though, we joke about the fact that they never travel, but when they do, they travel well to Adelaide, they travel well to Perth. So Collingwood, they're always going to be there or thereabouts. And, yeah, I think given the run that they've got going home and the fact that, obviously, a lot of the finals are going to be played in Melbourne, they're they're tough to pick against right now. Oh, they absolutely should be favourites. They absolutely should. The next best is the two Sydney teams with one win in a row. Every other team currently has a zero-game winning streak at Adelaide Oval. Look, do you know the one big thing for Collingwood? They've they've actually got a really good run into the finals in terms of they're going to get challenged. Carlton next week, Hawthorne. There's a couple of games there they probably should win, but then Geelong at the G, then you've got Brisbane at Marvel, and then you've got Essendon at the G. So three games leading into finals that will really put them through their paces. I think Collingwood are going to be absolutely primed for a good run at the flag this season. Oh, definitely. They have to be favourites now, definitely. Carlton have been a bit better of late, though, so they might challenge them. But how's this? So Aussie Sports Stats tweeted, or x whatever the fuck it's called when this is released. Most recent Collingwood games where teams behind at three-quarter time won. 2023, round 19, round 15, round 7, round 6, round 1. All Collingwood. 2022, qualifying final, Geelong win, just to prove that it's not all Collingwood. But then the rest of the list. Round 23, round 21, round 19, round 18, round 17, round 16, round 13, Collingwood all winners when they were behind at three-quarter time. So boy, do they come home with a wet sail, and boy, do they look the goods. Did you think a few of them should get into the porn industry? They're that good at coming from behind. <laughs> oh, I'm not going to touch that one. Did you see the VFL result, the Footscray Bulldogs and the Northern Bullouts? Footscray, 24 goals, 17, 161. And the goal-kicking list is the who's who of players that are sometimes in their AFL team at times. Northern Bullads, zero goals, four, four points. They kicked a massive two behinds in the third quarter. Jeez, that's right up there with the West Coast Eagles waffle zone. Well, it's, yeah, 161 to four. That's, that is woeful, woeful. Disgraceful. A couple of other things quickly. 
I don't know if you saw the out of bounds call on Aaliyah Aaliyah and the one that wasn't called on Jamie Elliott. You and I have always talked about how they should have to stay on their line if they're kicking from out of bounds. And the minute they deviate off their line, it should be out of bounds and a throw in every time. That Twitter account where has the umpire made the right call, he was trying to say that the Aaliyah Aaliyah one was called correctly and the Jamie Elliott one was called correctly. I tell you what, there's not a hell of a lot of difference between them. Yeah, look, I'll have to take your word for it. I did not see those ones, unfortunately. But yeah, I, I've always said that is one of the things. Like letting guys play on off the mark and run like 20 meters while they're out of bounds. Like you've, you've got to make the decision. It's either you go straight on your line and you kick over the top of the mark or you play on and you're out of bounds. One of the two. I agree. You should stay on your line. And if you, yeah, it's just bizarre. Uh, you, that's some homework for you, mate. Because honestly, I've watched both videos several times. And I still don't know what the fuck. And Alir Alir's copped it before as well. So it's like they're out to get him. Anyway, Harley Reid's told the Eagles not to draft him. Just to add insult to injury. Harley Reid can get fucked. We'll draft him and he can (laughs) can miss a year if he has to. That's the spirit. Just before we get to the NBA, Nath, I did want to just quickly stay on the football codes for one second. We spoke very briefly in a recent episode about those ridiculously big soccer scores. That 149 nothing win from a Madagascar final series and, and a couple of other ones. There was actually a preseason, I say friendly in inverted commas, between Bayern Munich and Rotag Egun from the ninth tier. I don't uh-huh. know if you saw this. The ninth tier. Bloody hell. Yes. This is the defending German champions as well. And uh, unfortunately, they decided to beat Rotag Egun 27 nothing. Jeez. Not good. And they've actually no. played them, I think, four years ago and beat them 23 nothing. So it's getting even worse. Ninth tier. My goodness. Yeah. yeah. I'm still it's, getting over that. Is, yeah. I mean, we we do quite enjoy that in Australia. We sort of, well, and also in, in England as well. They do a lot of that stuff in the FA Cup where teams from a lot of lower tiers actually get to play against these quality teams in the Premier League. But yeah, nine tiers down is a long way to go. <laughs> and it's no surprise they got smashed. Sure is. So, yeah, Nath, as you alluded to, a couple of really quick hits in the NBA. I don't know if you saw, but Kemba Walker has signed a one-year deal with AS Monaco. So he's decided, I don't really want to play off the bench and basically get no minutes in the NBA. I'm going to go and dominate the French League. Yeah, why not? And in a beautiful part of the world, too. I think it's a great idea. I think more players should do it. Absolutely. Io Desunmu of the Bulls, a three-year, $21 million deal. I think that's a very, very friendly deal for the Bulls. Yeah, I would agree with that, especially considering Lonzo Ball's injury issues with the big baller brand shoes and stuff. I think he's a very good point guard. That's that's a bargain. Yeah, and the fact that Ball's not playing, he's actually played 157 of the 164 games in the two seasons he's been in the league. So he's a guy who definitely is available. Very, very good player. Holds opponents to 44% shooting as their closest defender, which is in the top 10 amongst players to defend at least 700 shots. So he's a really, really good defender and someone the Bulls can certainly look to, I guess, build around. And also at an age where he could take the next step, he could probably go either way. He's kind of at that key age where either he's hit his ceiling or he'll take the next step. So, But no, I, th- I think that's a good signing. Definitely. <laughs> Speaking of signings, China has signed young Anderson from the Minnesota Timberwolves. Kyle Anderson getting Chinese citizenship ahead of the FIBA World Cup. Yeah, right. I didn't see that one. There you go. Very, very random one. A lot of these nations are starting to, I guess, naturalize these players. I mean, we've seen Serge Ibaka do that with Spain. Uh, we've seen Andre Blatch with the Philippines. There's been a number of players who have gone and played for these other teams just to kind of, I guess, give themselves a chance to play internationally. That's yeah, not the worst move in the world. Yeah, look, I don't hate it. It's probably 
skirting the boundaries at times of fairness, but if it helps lift the game and if it helps get teams into major tournaments, it's hard to be too pissed off about it. Definitely. Now, a couple of other things quickly. Hoop grids. Have you been yes. doing them? Yes. Well, no, I haven't because I've been a bit too busy, but uh, I got you onto it. <laughs> and I said to my mate, I said, Stewie will never work again. And sure enough, I'm sure, uh, yes, you've probably spent more time on it than you would care to admit already. I have, yes. Uh, so <laughs> anyone who hasn't seen these, it's a, a three by three grid. You've got three teams down one side, two teams up the top, and then a third column, which is something, whether it be in this case today, it's 200 plus three pointers in a season. You've got like 20,000 points club, average 12 rebounds a game for a season, that sort of thing. And you have to come up with the most obscure player that fits into both. Good thing for you today, Nath. One of the columns is the Spurs. Ah, nice. Okay, I might have a look at it after we record. I, I was happy with myself getting Bimbo Coles for Miami and Golden State. I think it was 0.8. I think that's the best I've got so far. But I'll be honest, I haven't played it much at all. Yeah, I've had a couple of very, very low ones. Uh, Richie Guerin, I think, was the most obscure one that I've come oh, up with. A yes. nick from way back when, like the well 50s. Well done. Yeah, yeah. But I, I I do a lot of stupid quizzes where I'm having to come up with lists of top 10 franchise rebounders, assisters, and all that sort of stuff. So I end up getting a lot of those random players that a lot of people maybe miss. And I did. I spent probably an hour and a half one day uh, on a, uh, not on a work call, <laughs> um, basically <laughs> just... <laughs> going through and researching which players had played for both teams to come up with the best possible grid available. And it, it seriously took me an hour and a half, but it was so much fun. Well, yeah, no, I knew you'd love it and I knew you'd be bloody good at it too. So I, I don't think I could hold a candle to you, but I will give it a go tonight. I'll go all right. I'll go all right. There's a, a few of them I've been up better than about 97% of other grids out there. So I'm, I'm doing all right in those, but there's a couple that have been like 75%. So it just depends on what the, the categories are. Now, I should also mention gridlygame.com. It's an AFL one that uh, my mate's friend made, kind of. I think hoopgrids.com is that one. I think that was the inspiration. But uh, yeah, tr check out gridlygame, G-R-I-D-L-E-Y game.com. Fun for the AFL fans too. Ah, oh, the Memphis Gridleys. Indeed. Very good. Now, I just wanted to finish the NBA with a quick correction from something I said when we were talking about the Marcus Smart trade. I did say that I couldn't remember if uh, there'd been a situation where two defensive player of the years had been on the same team at the same time. There was one that I found. Now, admittedly, both of them were certainly past their prime a little bit. Uh, the 2005-2006 Miami Heat featured Alonzo Mourning and Gary Payton, who had both won defensive player of the year in a previous season. It's certainly not quite the same as Jaron Jackson Jr. and Marcus Smart, who are certainly both in their prime right now, but it definitely did happen. And we nearly had another one Alvin Robertson left the San Antonio Spurs the year before David Robinson started. That would have been before Robinson won one, but Robertson moved across to the Milwaukee Bucks, I believe it was, and never played with David. It's got to be said, though, that you said never had back-to-back -back winners. So you were actually accurate, because obviously Zoe uh, and true. GP weren't back-to-back. -back. But still, good information. All right, Stewie, you know what that music means. Final thoughts time. Yeah, look, I'm going to enjoy the Ashes. I'm going to enjoy the fifth test. I'm going to enjoy the fact that we've retained him. Doesn't matter if it was a, a gross win as a result of rain and other shit. We'll take it. <laughs> we sure but, will. But no, just quickly, I did want to mention I'm making my AFL coaching debut over the weekend. I'm coaching my daughter in her year one All-Stars game. Yes. practicing the Don't Think Doom. Oh, and very I'm good. And I've seen a bit of Stewie Duke asking his midfield what the fuck they're doing. So I think I'm ready. I don't want to tell you that that speech was in a losing effort. Until next time, I'm Nathan. And I'm Stu. We are the Spot Blokes.